the only thing that really ties this collection together is that is the sense of feeling isolated in a very connected world. So like intensely connected world where things are happening, there's like globalization and you're getting in contact with a lot of people, but it's like feeling alone in a crowd is really the theme where, you know, the more connected we get, the more isolated we feel. And then the more we search for connection with others, the more distant we feel from them often. And so it's really just trying to make sense of this um, more very, very interconnected online and offline spaces where lots of historical events are happening and we're trying to connect with each other but can't. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. You guys, I am really enjoying this South Asian author series. I just realized I'm pretty sure I can continue doing the South Asian author series for like a year. There are so many amazing books out there. But today, I get to interview S.J. Sindhu. S.J. Sindhu is a genderqueer Sri Lankan American novelist and short story writer. And I really believe she is one of the most exciting young voices out there today. Her first novel, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, won the Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for debut fiction and was named an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book. Her upcoming book, The Goth House, is a collection of stories that focus on queer joy as well as shocking cruelty. And uh, it's confusing. I even asked her what that meant, but you'll figure it out during the interview. We talk about her upbringing in Sri Lanka, her memories of the Sri Lankan war and how much that trauma is incorporated into her writing. And of course, I have to ask her if she loves MIA as much as I do, because, you know, I did stalk her for a while back in, you know, 2004, 2005. Please enjoy my interview with SJ Sindhu. Really nice to meet you. I actually had you on my mind this year to to get you on the pod. I had connected with one of your agents. I'm not sure, agent, someone. I I know authors have various agents. And then circled back to her this past month. And that's how it all happened. Just if you were curious as to how I I stalked you. (laughs) And you have had quite an interesting life. So... I know, again, we did this so last minute, so I'm like 12 pages in, but I did get the book, Marriage of a Thousand Lies. You have many options. I was like, oh, wow, she has written a lot of stuff. So I was going to get Shakti. I have two girls. But I was going to ask you, because I know it's a middle school graphic novel, and I have a nine and six-year-old, so I wasn't sure if it was a right age for them or not. Yes. Yeah, it's from age eight to 12-ish. Oh, okay, well, then yeah. I will get that next. Because I was like, I think I can get through Shakti faster than this book. But it was your first novel, so I thought I would I would try it out first. And yeah, just started it last night, and we'll definitely finish it after our interview. But um, usually I get to read the book beforehand. Starting, obviously, you are an author. I know you're a professor. Is it assistant professor or professor? Assistant professor. Your first book, Marriage of a Thousand Lies. Your first novel, I guess. But before that, you wrote a chapbook, which is, I didn't know what a chapbook was, but... It is a small publication of up to 40 pages, according to uh, Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was in 2016. I once met you, but you were dead. So tell me about the beginnings of, of this, how you started. I know you were never, you never considered yourself a writer, as I guess, growing up. 
And then in college, you were a comp sci major, as a, as a good brown girl should be. And then you're like, wait a minute, I love writing, took a creative writing course, and then life changed. So uh, tell me a little bit from there. I had a hard time uh, convincing my family that I was going to drop out of, it was like this honors business and comp sci program. It was like all the fancy things that brown parents love. So I was like, yeah, I'm dropping out. I'm going to give up my housing scholarship and all of that stuff and like be an English major. So double whammy. You had the nice degree and the scholarship. Yeah, I still got to keep my tuition scholarship. So that was good. But I had like a housing thing that I had to give up. And I was like, it's okay. I'm I'm just going to I'm just going to do this. And I don't know why I thought this was it. This is what I was going to do. It happened really fast over the course of like a semester where I was convinced that this is what I was meant to be doing. And I was just I was going to do it no matter what stood in my way, what or who stood in my way. That's amazing. So just, That's amazing <laughs> yeah. that you, you got to that point. Because in college, I feel like everyone's just confused. I got to ask really quickly, do your parents still bring it up? <laughs> like the scholarship? Sometimes. <laughs> I feel like my parents would do that. Be like, do you remember, Becca, when you lost, when you let go of the scholarship? They bring up the fact that I didn't tell them until I graduated. Ah, okay. Something. Yeah, I was just like, you know what? If you're going to make a big deal out of it, I'm just not going to tell yeah. you. And it's going to be fine. Good idea. So yeah, I, I, I moved off campus with a, with a bunch of my friends and got a job and just supported myself through living elsewhere. And um, it was a time where I was just doing everything I could. I was really involved in like campus activism and doing all this other stuff. And it wasn't until I graduated that I really like focused and started focusing on writing. And that's when the pieces of the chapbook started to fall together. Like I started working on stuff that I was actually able to get published. Most of it was like short essays, um, nonfiction, a little bit of poetry, a little bit of flash fiction. And so all of the smaller stuff I started to gather up and put into a tiny book that became the chapbook. And I was also starting to work on uh, Marriage of a Thousand Lies in my master's program. I guess my question is, I feel like everyone wants to be a writer or is a writer or there's something in people that could be, you know, they could become a writer. My question to you is the chapbook, I once met you, but you were dead. Were you trying to figure out what your genre is, was, has that changed over time? How was the search to kind of find your voice as a writer, as an author? I didn't know it was a chapbook at that time. I was just working on, you know, different pieces, but clearly I was obsessed with the same things. So like was kind of cohesive by the end, but I was just working on pieces, trying to figure out like, yeah, what kind of writer I was, what I wanted to write about. But fiction had always had this pull for me. And once I started working on long form fiction in the form of a novel, that was it. Like I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But I also am somebody who gets bored easily. So working on a novel is like you work on it for like five years. And so like it's a long commitment. And so the smaller pieces are my way of playing in between and during working on a big project. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this uh, today because I don't feel like working on the big project. And so it was it was just a way of play and experimentation while working on a bigger thing. I feel like that's probably for all of us who actually think about writing a novel. I feel like it's the idea of it's so daunting just because of the commitment, like you said, it takes. 
So I think it's genius to kind of go off and work on little things on the side while you're doing that, right? So it can help maybe even bring you back into the right place. Yeah, it helps energize for sure when I'm losing momentum or steam or just excitement. Because a novel, like especially a literary novel that's dealing with really heavy subjects, it's like you don't really want to go into that headspace every day <laughs> to like be like, oh, yes, okay, so I'm, I'm in the headspace of a character who's really miserable, and here I go. It's fine to read, I think, but it's really hard to, to write. I feel like that's a compared to like podcasters that produce true crime shows. I'm like, after, like, mm-hmm. they must need some kind of mental break from all this. This is, even listening uh-huh. to, like, a series of true crime, I'm like, I need to go, like, pray somewhere. Like, it just has to get to you, you know? Okay, so then your first novel, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, follows the life of Lucky, a 20-something lesbian who marries her friend Krishna, a fellow Sri Lankan-American who's also gay. So I was trying to read articles on you last night, and this was actually based on a real-life experience you had with one of your friends from college who maybe jokingly or really said we should kind of get pretend to get married or something to that extent. So I was kind of like broken up with a long-term partner, and I moved in with my best friend, Sam, who was an Indian gay man, and we were really, really close and we're living together. And my parents were really starting to be like, okay, you need to, you need to get married. You're like, you're an English major. You're doing all this stuff. You're, you're living maybe with people we don't approve of. And you're saying you're bisexual or queer and you're involved in activism. Like it's time to settle down and like grow up and, you know, start a family and get married to the right guy. And so these like suitable bachelors would call me at random moments. I had to like make space in my schedule for them. And my bio data was everywhere. And, you know, was giving, was this all your- being given out by aunties. A couple of things. <laughs> was this by your parents? Like they sent out your bio data and they made it? I mean, they were getting a lot of pressure from outside because I'm the oldest grandchild and I have a ton of cousins. So like if I go wrong, it'll mess up the entire family tree. It derails everyone. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Yes. Of course. It gives everyone a bad example to follow. So I like they were like, you got to nail this down. And so (laughs) it was really a very like large scale family. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was happening. I was really stressed out about it. And my friend Sam was like, well, I don't want to get deported back to India. Why don't we just get married? I get a green card. You get to say that you're married to an Indian man. And like, we can just be. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I was young. I was like, I believe in true love. Yeah. And I was like, I can't. Remember those days? I'm kidding. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's genius. You said just now, I think when you were telling me that story, that you had already told them that you identify as queer. So we all know Indian, Sri Lankan parents, like South Asian parents in general. I love how their reaction was, yeah, it's time to get married. <laughs> did, they, did they even, I assume, weren't happy with the idea of that or the fact that you were? And then do they even understand the concept? Yeah. And my mom's argument was, but you still like men, right? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, Good. well, forget this. Yeah. And you just go there. I'm like, that's not really how that. She's like, this go works. this way. You go this yeah. way. Yeah. Like, so you can just turn off that part of yourself and then, you know, do this. Um, so, yeah, they were not happy. They still kind of aren't happy. But 
It's been, I'm in my mid thirties. It's kind of too late. Yeah. Kind of over time is like acceptance, right? And I'm assuming by now they know what you write about. And so that kind of, yeah. yeah, right, right. So yes, I will definitely get through that. And then the second novel was Blue Skin Gods, which I feel like should become a movie, just throwing it out there. I read your notes on your process and and the reasons you wrote this book and and a few th- a few of the, not triggers, but experiences you had that made you write this book. A lot of it had to do with growing up Hindu in Sri Lanka, um, which was obviously, I know you mentioned that growing up Hindu in Sri Lanka, you couldn't be public about it. You could potentially get killed for that, which by the way, I had, I'm just dumb. I had no idea that that was a situation in Sri Lanka with Hinduism. So I'd love for you to talk about that. So I think that was one of the main things. So religious, the religious aspect, the fact that your parents have become more religious after you told them about being queer. And then of course you lived through the Sri Lankan war. So the PTSD from that. So a lot of these very deep, heavy concepts were, I feel like you wrote Blue Skin Gods was kind of, you wrote it for like a therapy session, (laughs) a very very big therapy session, right? Am Mm -hmm. I correct? I mean, yes. Uh, I also wrote it because it was, it was like something completely made up that like was far away from my own experience. Like I was still pulling obviously from my own experience and talking about subjects that I wanted to talk about, but it wasn't me on the page, right? Like Marriage of a Thousand Lives was so heavily based on my experience of being in the closet as a South Asian queer person. But like Blue Skin Gods was like fun. I was making stuff up and bringing the character all sorts of places and putting him in all sorts of situations that I was like, I needed that break that the next five years of fun writing so that I could return to the subjects that are heavy, like the Sri Lankan war that I've been trying to write about for a very long time and really couldn't. You know, in Sri Lanka, the the majority of people, 80% are Buddhist. So the rest of us, <laughs> the religious minorities, and there's a lot of like Buddhist nationalism that happens in Sri Lanka. And so Christians, Hindus and Muslims are heavily discriminated against. And then, of course, during the war, those three religions became synonymous with the rebels and terrorism and all of this stuff. So it's something that, you know, when you when you're in Buddhist majority areas, you restrain from speaking Tamil and you, people would like take the bindi off and like try to dress a little bit more Buddhist or something like that. So it's something that, you know, you had to really hide. And it wasn't until I came here to the U.S. and like was in a diaspora that was majority Hindu and majority Indian, where I was like, oh, wait, you guys don't have this experience of being discriminated against because you're Hindu back home. And so then I'm like, okay, now I'm like associated with this religion that has nationalism tied to it in India. And like, I was like, okay, I have to deal with all of that. And, and the caste angle too, like caste in Sri Lanka is different. We have a different caste system. And because of the war, caste is really kind of muddled and like people of my grandparents' generation really care a lot and people of my generation don't care at all. But like, it's not the same in India. And so like, I'm like, okay, trying to wrap my head around all of this and all of that like went into the book as I was writing it. That's a lot of different angles for you to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was feel a little silly that I didn't know that this, that was a situation in Sri Lanka with Hindus. I know Hindus and, and Christians and Muslim are a minority. But yeah, I didn't realize it was that intense. But yeah, I think it feels like, again, just 
from my two days of reading about you, feels like you wrote this book. It was a escape, meaning you wrote it a little bit, it's a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun, but maybe like a safe space for you to talk about these, these issues and, and the PTSD and everything you went through, but in a safer space. Yeah, I could deal with all of the all of the things I wanted to deal with without bleeding onto the page. Right, right. Without having wanting to like bang your head against the wall every night for sure. Yeah. Well, I hope to dig into that next because it seems very interesting. I am I grew up Hindu. My parents are super religious. Um I'm I'm sure you've met many Indian, <laughs> Sri Lankan Americans who were born and raised here. A lot of our parents have hung on a little tighter to the culture and religion than even people back in India. And so I feel like most of my friends' parents have done that. So I grew up super religious and Hindu, let it go in my 20s and 30s. Um, I have two kids now. I, I did marry a Hindu Brahmin. Whoop, whoop. By the way, I didn't give a <laughs> shit. It just happened. But two kids now. And, you know, I still consider myself Hindu. But I think when I when you have kids, you really start thinking about it a little bit more, whether you ha- whether you've let it go or not. And so, religion has never left me. But now I'm really like, what is Hinduism in my life now? You know, what does it mean? What does it mean for my kids? You know, we're obviously we're we're in America. We're going to be here for the rest of our lives. And they go to a Christian school. It's a private school, which is you know just that's the way it is in Dallas. And so all these things have got me thinking a, a lot more about what that means, you know, in general. But anyways, that's that's kind of my my journey with Hinduism and and just trying to figure out how to embrace it, but in a maybe in a not a healthier way than my parents, but just in a different way, in a way that makes sense for us, you know, and in a less problematic way yeah. than a lot of the diaspora. Yeah, um, yeah, right, right, totally. So then you wrote another chat book. I love that. Mm-hmm. I learned what the chat book means. Uh, Dominant <laughs> genes. Of course, Shakti, which I will get for my kids. I just, it's in middle school. So I was like, maybe I should just wait. But now that you've said that, would love to get it. I am buying as many South Asian books for kids, like by South Asian authors for my kids so they can see all these characters, right? It's so important. And it's so great that all of you authors are doing this for our kids. And then The Goth House, which is now, it's coming out in October. Yeah, the Goth House experiment comes out a little bit more than a month. Yay, I didn't know this, that you had something coming out. And I just read, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And so you got to tell me more about it, because all I got out of it all, from, from the internet again was, you know, it's a collection of stories that focus on queer joy as well yeah. as shocking cru- cruelty. And I was like, huh. What? Okay, explain. Goth House is essentially was written over the over the course of, a, of about 10 years. OK, so again, I was working on these pieces as I was working on bigger projects, bigger novel projects. These were like my breaks or my my diversions. And I, I just like to do that. I like to work on more than one project. And so these started out as like writing challenges. And so I would have a challenge like I need. OK, in this story, I'm going to kill off my main character. Or in this story, I have to make something completely absurd happen. Just things that are hard to do in writing and especially hard to do in the short story space. And I would just give myself these challenges. And then eventually I started to actually revise them toward publication or toward polish, toward a sort of more cohesive manuscript. And what came together was a really, you know, a collection of very varied stories. Some are speculative fiction, some are realistic. They take place in all sorts of settings. 
but they do have some commonalities. There's, you know, most people, most of the protagonists are kind of loners, they're artists, they're outsiders. I really like that perspective and I like that perspective in my characters. The only thing that really ties this collection together is that is the sense of feeling isolated in a very connected world. So like intensely connected world where things are happening, there's like globalization and you're getting in contact with a lot of people, but it's like feeling alone in a crowd is really the theme where, you know, the more connected we get, the more isolated we feel. And then the more we search for connection with others, the more distant we feel from them often. And so it's really just trying to make sense of this um, more very, very interconnected online and offline spaces where lots of historical events are happening and we're trying to connect with each other, but can't. Which is, look, all really relevant, which is exactly what is happening. I've been hearing, all I do is listen to podcasts, but I've heard over and over again that the number one killer for Americans is loneliness, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. loneliness leads to other health issues. And so I think it's super relevant. It's happening more and more, especially I feel like to people in the U.S. My parents are here, but they go to India every year for four or five months I think to feel connected again, it's a real issue for sure. And and something that we all need to really think about. COVID has taught us, taught us that as well. And so it comes out October 17th, you said, and then where can people get it? Anywhere where books are sold. Awesome. Um, Perfect. Online or offline. And I will put put that in my notes. So congratulations on your, I don't know if you call it the sixth book novel. Anyways. Sixth publication, whatever it is. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I kind of wanted to go back to you growing up. I know you lived, born in Sri Lanka, lived there till you were seven. Like you said, a survivor of war. This is kind of a loaded question, but what do you remember from those seven years? I'm sure they're just flashes of memories, but it must have stuck with you. Yeah, I think because they were such intense memories, they still are there. And I remember quite a lot. I was surprised how much I did remember. I went back to Sri Lanka this past summer and I was just blown away by how much the city of Jaffna felt like home. It's where I grew up. It's where I lived. And even like, even the taste of the fruit felt like home. I, I, it is so bizarre. I've never had this feeling before. It's, it's I've been funny a what, like, person. What, what things jog mm-hmm. memories, like smell, yeah. like you just, yes. you don't know smell it until you taste. experience it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a displaced person for so long that like I had forgotten that I have a home <laughs> and that something can feel like home. But yeah, I remember Jaffna. I remember a lot of the war I lived in Jaffna during a time when there were a lot of air raids. And so like we uh, built a bunker in our house and we had a dugout bomb shelter outside of the house in the backyard. I remember those things. I remember playing with uh, my friends and well, most of my friends were my cousins because we (laughs) we just had a large family. I remember my dog. You know, I remember most of the things. I remember being very unpopular in school. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I think the more uncool you are growing up, the cooler you get. I mean, yes, cooler you get as an adult. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think it's all, I don't want my girls to be cool. I'm like, be uncool. It's fine. It will help you later in life. Yeah, it builds character. Builds character. (laughs) That's, that's That's my favorite saying, builds character. 
<laughs> Sorry, continue. Yeah, so I do remember quite a lot from that time. Um, I'm still trying to write about it. I've been trying to write about it since college. And it's just, you know, writing about a big thing like war takes a lot of talent and skill. I did not feel like I had the skill <laughs> in college to really capture it. I feel like I I have, like right now, however many, 20 years later, 30, 25 years later, I feel like I've gained the skill to actually yeah. write about the war in a way that makes sense. And so that's what I'm working on right now is to write a novel that's dealing with the war in some way. Is there going to be a protagonist that maybe resembles yourself? I'm, no, okay. I, I don't want to do okay. that. Okay. Um, I, I like really resist it. Um, after the after my experience writing marriage, I was like, yeah, you know, everyone like it's so okay. much easier to write when when the character is not me. Okay. So got it, got yeah. it. All right. So how do you feel you went back there, you said, how do you feel your relationship is with Sri Lanka? Maybe even India. I'm not sure if you've gone there often. Obviously, India has turned very nationalist. <laughs> we all know that. Um, what is your relationship to the culture and calling it home? I've only gone back. So I left Sri Lanka in 95. I went back in 2005 and I went back this year. So I've only been back a couple times. I've only been back to Jaffna this time. Um, and so like it's been, you know, 18 years since I was there. But besides just feeling like home, I feel like this trip because it's the only trip I've had since the war ended. It's really changed my conception of like being of the access to Sri Lanka. Like during the war, it felt like Sri Lanka was inaccessible. Like, you know, going there was taking a huge risk. It's still quite risky because you don't know, like political tensions are still kind of high and you don't know what can happen at any moment. But, you know, it's, it's, Sri Lanka has changed quite a lot. The airport in Jaffna is open and there's like, you know, there's flights out of it. And it's just bizarre. It's so interesting to watch what has happened after the war and the kinds of rebuilding that's that's been taking place. So I want to go back quite a lot. I have not been to India. I've wanted to go. And every time it's been, you know, like my family has no connection there. But I do want to go. I think it's Culturally, you know, I, I have more in common with Indians than I do with ma- the majority of Sri Lankans. It's a weird feeling where it feels like home, but it isn't. And it's really different. So, like, I, I guess the only place, like, that really feels like home outside of Sri Lanka is Toronto because there's such a huge South Asian population and a huge Sri Lankan Tamil Hindu population oh, I didn't in know that. Toronto. Okay. Yeah, you can get any kind of like South Asian food you want. I knew like, that, I knew the Indians, it might be. I didn't realize the Sri Lankan population was big there as well. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. very cool. Mm-hmm. I did go to Sri Lanka once, the typical New Year's. I went for a couple of days, obviously did the touristy things. I mean, this was like 10 years ago. The thing I can recall was that it was a different feeling than India. There was a difference. It wasn't like I landed in Sri Lanka. I was like, oh, was, so as a, as a, Indian American kid who went to India a couple of times. I, I lived in India for a couple of years as well, but I remember landing in Sri Lanka and it feeling different. You know, there is a different culture. There is a different vibe, a different environment. I mean, everything. And so we loved it. Um, again, it was four days of just partying and drinking, but you know, it was still fun. The touristy stuff is actually really great. And we did some of that too. Like we stayed on the beach and 
did all the like the beachy kind of like touristy stuff. It's beautiful. And it is you're right. It's a totally different it's it's island life, right? It's island culture in a lot of ways. Island culture. An island like it definitely reminds me more. I lived in Delhi and I've lived in Delhi, Bombay and Bangalore. It definitely feels more like South India. Just more chill. People aren't aggressive. We stayed at the coolest boutique hotels. I can't remember the names at all, but my husband and I lived there when we first got married. We would move to India for three years. So I just remember we bought a bunch of like pottery and paintings. It was just a really cool four days there. I just remember really, really loving it. Again, didn't explore much besides the little area we were in, but remembered always say, t- telling my husband, like, I want to go back whenever we can. It's just really cool for tourists, at least. Yeah. And it's getting that way for non-tourists as well, or people returning back to Sri Lanka, for sure. For sure. I cannot ask you, I gotta ask you, and I'm sure you've been asked this before. Are you an MIA fan? Uh, yes. I don't, I don't always agree with her politics. Okay. Okay. Cause I'm a huge yeah. fan, of course, just based on the music and her. Yeah. I love the, I love her music. Okay. I do. Okay. Well, one day yeah. we'll have to sit down. I have it. I have some good MIA stories. I like got on stage with her where was I did like I danced with her in the back yeah I was I, I literally was oh gonna quit God. law school and follow her around <laughs> I even wrote her tour manager an email about why I should be on tour with them I mean this is me 2004 anyways yeah so I just I was like I gotta ask her it might be annoying but you know <laughs> Sri Lanka you guys might be related somehow I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> actually you, you never, you never know. know you never know so then you know I know child, then you moved to the U.S., Boston area, which you say you've written that it felt comfortable there. You didn't really feel like the other there until you moved to South Dakota, which I don't even think I've been to South Dakota. And I've been in the States my whole life. And that's when you really began thinking of what it meant to be different. And I love what you said here. You wrote this out. You said the Midwest made you want to become radicalized. (laughs) And it's just a good way of like summing it up. So Mm -hmm. tell me about that experience. Is there a story or two that you can remember where you're like, oh shit, this is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we moved uh, right from Sri Lanka to Amherst, Massachusetts, which is like, you know, like UMass, Amherst College, Holyoke, Smith, and Hampshire are all in one place. And so I I went to the elementary school attached to the teacher's college at UMass. And so like, it was just professor's kids and like really diverse. And not that everything was great. Like I was still bullied and it was, you know, but it wasn't because I was brown. It was because I was a nerd. (laughs) You know what though? It builds character. (laughs) Just keep saying it. it. Yes. Builds character. It was, it was fine. And when I was in Boston, um, in high school, all of my friends were super political. You know, the, the Iraq war was, had started, um, my freshman year of high school was 9-11. You know, they would go to these protests and I was just kind of like, I agree with you, but I can't go to this protest. And like, I am scared. I don't want to do that. Like, it's fine. You know, when you're in Massachusetts, or I think maybe parts of California, you can live in this like weird bubble where you like think that everybody (laughs) is cool and progressive. But then yeah, South Dakota, my parents moved for work. And the kids in my high school, I was the I was one of two brown kids in my high school. And everybody thought we were related. And I was like, 
Was the other person even of South Asian descent or were they like totally Asian? Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So my parents moved there because like they have these best friends from like high school and college that they've they've sort of followed each other around the world for most of their lives. And that's kind of why we went to South Dakota is because they were already there. And so their kid was in my high school and everyone was like, you're you got, you know, is that your brother? Like, uh." but like this was a high school where kids would not be friends with people outside of their church group. They were only friends with people who went to the same church. And I was just like, I don't even go to church. I don't know what that means. And so I like, in terms of like making friends, it was really difficult. I had to like find the anime nerds and like the D&D folks and we were friends. And it was really racist. Like I, it was my first time experiencing like explicit racism in that way in the US because before like, you know, Boston is racist, but it's like all kind of like under, yeah, swept, swept under, under a little. Yeah, bit. it's yes. like it's, it, yeah, it's yes. like folded in. It's like in, in your face, South Dakota. Yeah. 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 When we went to restaurants, the waiters would just like shout at my parents because they, you know, that thing where you hear somebody with an accent and you think that if you just speak loudly, right. they're gonna understand you. Makes sense. There was a coupon salesman that like went door to door. I opened the door and he was like, "Pizza." Coupons for pizza. And then he like started to explain to me what a pizza was with like big gestures. And I was just like, there was just like this assumption that like. I hope you let him explain. I would have let him talk. Yeah, it was just hilarious. I don't know, understand what? I would have let him keep going. and He was like making these big like round (laughs) gestures and like putting as like, oh my God, this is like, I am in, it felt like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. I was just in a bizarre world and it was, it was wild. And at the same time, like it was 2002, Massachusetts had just legalized gay marriage. And so like that became a huge issue. And South Dakota, like most of my teachers were conservative. The queer kids in my school who would like hold hands would get yelled at. There were fights. And it was just a bizarre experience that I'm glad I had. Yeah. Because Bill's character, like major. Yeah. And it made me political. I went off to college and I was just like, okay, I'm going to just be in politics. I'm going to be an activist. I'm going to, I have to do something because if I don't, no one else is going to do it. Well, it seems like. You went to University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Is that right? Mm-hmm. My yeah. gosh, I don't even know where that... I'm so dumb. You would assume, again, that that would be another high school experience for you, but it, you found your crew there, and it feels like college life transformed you because you were able to find, quote-unquote, your people and not feel like the other... I mean, which college tends to do. My parents, when we were in Amherst, were doing grad school at UMass, And so like from a very young age, I was just part of academia in some tangential way and especially part of a large like research university. I just feel comfortable in that environment. And so Nebraska felt a lot like that. There were just so many people. There were 40,000 people. And so like all the queer kids and all the weirdos like came there because they wanted to escape their own small town. There was space to. There was space to come there. Yeah. Right, right, right. For sure. Yeah. And so we found each other and we became politically active together. And that's that was everything to me. That's amazing. Really quickly, I love that people, when talking to your parents in South, you know, when you guys were in South Dakota, they were trying to speak to them as if they didn't know English. And both your parents are scientists, right? 
Yeah. They're like, yeah, guys, um, why don't we explain stuff to you? <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was infuriating. Yeah. It makes you want to say something like, like really, <laughs> really dumbass. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we talked about you, you identify as queer, uh, gender queer femme. Is that correct? And so, of course, in your books, you write about queer characters. And I love that you want to write about these queer characters without having their sexuality at the forefront, just about their adventures, their experiences, like just their life stuff. And I love that you want to do that. It doesn't have to about be about just being queer. And I wrote that book, right? Like my first book was about being queer and that was like the main focus. And now I'm kind of like, yeah, but we need like a queer person with a sword fighting a dragon too. Of course. So I, it feels like, you know, obviously queer characters, religion, spirit, spirituality, those have been major themes in your books. Is there anything else that you consider a major theme or maybe just something that's just been so deep rooted in you that you write about? I write about a lot about immigration and migration and the kinds of intergenerational conflict that produces when you when you like take a family and then move them and then the kids are part of one culture and the parents are part of another. I'm really interested in what that does to a family dynamic. For sure. So you consider yourself Sri Lankan American now. I would say Tamil American. Tamil American. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So more the culture. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Awesome. I got to ask, dating wise, do you gravitate towards dating in the South Asian community or is that still hard? No, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, like, how is it, you know, obviously more and more South Asians yeah. are out. It's, and I think like, if, if I was single now, I would not rule it out. But when I was single, I was like, you know, especially in my early 20s, I was kind of like, well, this would make my parents happy. Right. So I'm not going to do it. Right. And then always like with a South Asian person, it felt like marriage was always on the table and I didn't want it to always be on the table. And I've only dated one South Asian person ever just because uh, <laughs> it was just like really resistant. It wasn't Nisha, was it? No, it was a it was a man who like three months after we started dating basically told me like, my mother has given me a deadline. I need, I'm going to go to India and pick out a bride. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? How, how old are you guys at this point? I don't even understand. Like 26, I think. I was 20, like 25 something. Yeah. Those people still exist in the US? I'm so confused. Yeah. I'm so confused. Yeah. It was just, I was just like, what? I've never run across that before. And he did. He like went to India and like, Within the court, I think he dated, he like met with women for like two weeks and then, and then the second two weeks were planning the wedding and then he got married and came back. Is he still married? I think so. <laughs> I'm just like, did that work? I mean, I hope it did great, but wow. <laughs> I guess, you know, some people just want to do it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I've actually never even been on an app. I'm old. So like I met my husband the old school way through through friends at a New Year's party in Bombay, as you do. And so when I hear dating stories nowadays, I'm like, that's so interesting. Like I, I haven't been on a date in like 15 years. So yeah, I've been with my partner for 10 years. Oh, nice. And how did you guys so, meet? Like, we met in grad school. Very cool. And yeah. then got to ask and you don't have to answer. Do mom and dad, mm -hmm. how are mom and dad with everything now? I know. You mentioned earlier, yeah, that they were yeah. a little, still um, a little bit like hesitant, but 
Yeah. So he's uh, my partner is a white boy. Okay. So the fact that he's a boy, okay, a man, you check, you check out one really box. far. Okay. Yeah, and they were like, "Oh, well, let's just let's let her do this because we don't know who she might bring home if we if we oppose this." So it was just like she got one big bucket for us. So yes. every the brownness, the castness, and everything else could just. Calm down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's amazing. I, I love that. Our parents are just hilarious. So I know you said uh, you are currently a assistant professor at mm-hmm. Virginia Commonwealth University. How long have you been there and how has that experience been? I moved literally a year ago from Toronto, University of Toronto, to be here. It's been great. I teach in the MFA program, so I get to work with graduate students and um, who are just amazingly talented and I also get to work with undergraduates who who are just kind of eager and and happy to be there, and and uh, it's it's really nice to sort of see it across, see education, especially creative writing across across ages and across you know all levels. So that's it's been really good. It must be it's inspiring. Really um, th- this kind of turn I don't know if you call it a turn, but this path towards mm-hmm. becoming a assistant professor was that did that come to you? Was that up in the plans? I think because I'd always been kind of like very comfortable with academia, once I decided to become an English major, I was sort of like, well, what job can I have? And the jobs are, you know, you can really have any job as an English major, but I was like, I want time and space to write. And the only job really that gives you time and space to write is as a professor. As a professor at, at VCU, 40% of my time is supposed to be spent writing and 40% is spent teaching. And I'm like, that's a great breakdown. I love that. So like the universities are really the last like patronage of the arts that you can really get now. So um, that's really why I went into academia. But I also really love teaching and that has been a happy surprise. I feel like you've carved out this beautiful path for yourself. And, and I just uh, did an interview with, his name is Sunil Gupta. He wrote a book called Everyday Dharma. And it's about dharmas, you know, your your calling, your essence, your inner, what what you really want to share with the world, but maybe you haven't found yet. And I really feel like that's, it's an amazing thing that you have found your dharma and have carved it out for yourself in a way that makes sense for your life, which is really hard to do. I'm grateful that I found it so early that I didn't really yeah. like wang around that I, you know, I found it and I was like, kind of had tunnel vision after that. I was just like, this is what I want. And the, so I, I kind of went after it and I'm really, really, I feel really lucky that I was able to do that. Maybe we should thank all those racists in South Dakota that bugged you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It built character. <laughs> That's the name of this episode, Build Character. <laughs> really quickly, a couple more minutes left and then I promise I will let you go. We, we are going to do a fast round. So first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What personality trait are you most proud of? Drive, motivation. Describe yourself in one word. Uncommon. (laughs) What is your biggest pet peeve? Lack of motivation. (laughs) How do you want to be remembered by the people around you? As somebody who went after things even when I was scared. Who would be your ultimate collaboration this year? Well, I'm collaborating with my partner. He's a poet. Yay. So um, his name's Jeff Bouvier. His his book is also coming out. Okay. You should check it out. Oh, that's very, what a sweet, usually people are like Oprah, <laughs> Obama. You're like, oh, the man I love. 
this last answer I always tell all my guests, I, I assume it's going to be family and friends. But other than that, if it all goes awry, what are your bare bones for happiness? A slow life and water, like <laughs> beach or, or lake, or I'll, I'll take a river if I have to. I love that. Yay. Okay. I'm done with you. I promise. I mean, I had like 10 more questions. But... <laughs> Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.